It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hi, this is your captain speaking. And to my left is co-pilot Stephen Rigg, helping to keep us on course. Please, keep your trays in the upright position until the booze arrives, store unruly children in the overhead compartments, and fasten your seatbelts. This could be a bumpy ride. Ken Shane was born in London, England in the 1960s. He has been an assistant director for almost 40 years and worked as a production manager during that time as well. Now, one of Ken's first jobs was working for George Lucas on a little box office flop in 1980 called The Empire Strikes Back. He continued working straight on from that time and has over 100 film and TV productions on his resume. In 1985, he worked with Toby Hooper on the insanely over-the-top space vampire classic Life Force, as well as on Ridley Scott's Legend, or Leg End. He was busy as well in 1987, working on Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, John Borman's Hope and Glory, and Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun. He went on to work on another massive box office flop in 1989, Tim Burton's Batman... He would work with Burton again on 1999's Sleepy Hollow, but not before being second unit assistant director on David Fincher's criminally underrated debut, Alien 3. Yeah, I said it's criminally underrated. Changed my mind. Ken served as AD on HBO's Band of Brothers in 2001, working with Spielberg again and Tom Hanks. Ken Shane has worked with everyone from Tom Cruise to Meryl Streep to Sir John Gielgud, Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Johnny Depp, to Sigourney Weaver and Christopher Walken and beyond. Now, Ken moved to Vancouver, Canada in 2004 and has continued to work steadily in the Canadian film industry. Okay, but what has any of this got to do with Stanley Kubrick? Well, I'm gonna tell you. You see, Ken Shane was third assistant director on Kubrick's third anti-war masterpiece, Full Metal Jacket. So, now that we've completed the pre-flight check, you can put your seats back as we take off into Kubrick's universe once again and hear from Ken Shane about working with Kubrick and other areas of his long career in the movie business. We interviewed Ken in July 2020. Hi, Ken. Thanks for joining us. And how are you holding up in the lockdown? Uh, having a great time. What can <laughs> I say? <laughs> Let's not be negative. Here, here to that. Cheers. Um, so I guess for our first question, I would like to know, with all the movies you've worked on since the 1980s, mainly as 3rd AD, um, you also worked as second assistant director and first AD 
over the years. Um, can you tell our audience a bit about what those jobs entail? The different the differences are um, it's it's a structural thing. It's a growing growing um, uh, course that you start off at the bottom where you'd start off as a uh, a runner in England or a PA in North America, um, and just basically being the dog's body, running around doing as you're told. And then you qualify. In the days I was a third AD, you had to be. It was a union job, so you had to qualify for the amount of days you'd done to get into the union. And then you could be called a third assistant director. Um, and in the early 80s, it was very much you stood next to the first assistant, and when that person said something, you went and did it and made sure everyone else was aware of it. Then nowadays, everybody and their mother has a walkie-talkie on the set, so communication is all over the place. Everybody knows what they're doing, supposedly. Not so much back in the earlier days when we probably had about four walkie-talkies, which only the assistant directors had. Um, yeah, then you move up slowly over the years. You've done a lot of third ADing. Um, you, um, you move up to a second AD where you become more of uh, it's a, a paperwork trail where you're working with the first AD, making sure everything is there for the day you're actually working, and then prepping for the next days ahead, making sure things everyone knows what's coming up and who's needed, calling actors, giving their times, what time they're going to be picked up, working with makeup and costume, how long they need to be in there to get ready. And then finally, you after 100 or so years of uh, working, you become a first AD. And the first AD's job is to start on the production on the first day with a script, read the script, and then what we do is we break it down. Now, breaking it down means reaching, reading sorry, each scene and identifying the requirements for every single scene. It's like how many actors, what actors are involved in one scene and where does it take place? Is it day? Is it night? And we do that for the whole script. And we, from that, we can create a schedule so we know what to shoot on each day. And that schedule is to make it as economic as possible for time and money so that we go to one location, we shoot all of the interior of the house scenes on one day. The next day, we move to the exterior of the house and shoot all the exterior house. And so that's sort of the prep. You work with the director and the DP. You help find locations. You work out what you're going to need on each of those locations, whether it's effects, stunts. Then you work with the stunt department to work out how the stunts are going to be performed on each location. And it's a slow build, and the most the hardest work for the first AD really is in the preparation, because once you've made it all, everyone's aware of what they need to do, it's only a question of making sure it happens. So once it comes down to the shooting stage of it, the first AD is on the floor with the director, and is really like the, the, the command center, the control person who decides what we're going to do next, uh, which is the most economical way of moving forward, working with the director to make sure what he or she needs, uh, uh, bearing in mind the restrictions of the location and the director of photography's requirements. So it's a, it's a building process and it's a team, it's teamwork for all of it. Mm. So that's basically If things change, are you the person responsible for, for doing the call sheets and altering, altering the structure of that original schedule that was so fantastic once? Yeah, the first the first AD is responsible for building the schedule, and that's usually just done on time for when you start filming because you want to use every moment you can to get everything set up. Um, and then should things change, it's an organic process, so things often change. So you have to fire from the hip and work out what's the best thing to do next. 
it's basically uh it's basically sort of more um crisis management it's uh you're just hmm. controlling things that could go wrong right putting out fires as they say constantly yeah yeah um and i imagine that your uh previous work uh prior to full metal jacket would have given you an abundance of experience and also if i may say confidence in going into that project so i want to ask how did you get the job working with stanley on full metal jacket well as you know stories of stanley kubrick um the production started filming in early september and i think they started on a i think for some reason they started on a tuesday i'm not sure why hmm. and they were shooting what they called a six so they're going to shoot monday to uh, sorry, Tuesday to Saturday that week, and then Monday to Saturday for the rest of their lives. <laughs> uh, on the Saturday of the first week, I got a call and said, would you be interested in joining us on Full Metal Jacket? Because they were replacing the poor guy who had managed to not quite survive four days. Oh, wow. So, um, and it's really just by a uh, process of elimination. They, the, somebody knows somebody knows somebody, and they know Ken Shane's available. He's, he's okay at what he does. Get him on board. Right. That's basically all it was down to. I hadn't worked with the first AD before. I had worked with um, the first AD's best friend, second AD, who wasn't actually the second AD on the film but was in fact the second AD on uh, Barry Lyndon and The Shining. Okay, interesting. That was Michael, that was Michael Stevenson who was Oh, yes, yes, AD. yes. You've heard of his name. Of and course, I was, absolutely. I, I worked on four films in previous years with him, and so I think my name came through that. And then I just got a phone call and said, well, can you start Monday? And uh, it was like, how much money? And I said, this is what I want. It's, it's a bit much. I said, do you want me on Monday? And they said, yes. So I started Monday. <laughs> and it's as simple as that. That's as simple as getting, that's how it went, getting that job. From a call to negotiation to a handshake. Yep. So yeah. you mentioned you started in uh, September 85 and uh, you finished in late January uh, 1986. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Do you recall which scenes in particular, any uh, in particular you did or is it easier for you to I say which so. scenes yeah, I, perhaps you didn't? Well, I did all of Vietnam because we basically finished it apart from the end sequence. Because Stanley didn't know what to do about that. So that just never happened until right near the end of the film. Mm. But we shot all of the, the battles, the action stuff in Vietnam with all the guys getting killed. We did quite a bit in the, in the uh, army barracks uh, with the lots of the drilling. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we didn't do really any exterior of the army barracks. That that came later. That uh, I didn't do any of that. Uh, but we did the attack on um, the night shoot, which was the attack on um, I can't remember what they're called, but they, they, the base gets attacked, and it was a night exterior shoot. We did four nights up in the army barracks on that. Uh, did the funeral? Well, not the funeral, the burial, the the grave scene. Mm -hmm. Shot that, and that was that was shot in a day. Uh, yeah, quite quite a fair amount. Wow, certainly enough to have kept you uh, yeah, for that Mouse much scene, time. I remember that for a long time. I think that's that's where I was finishing. I think that's when I finished was when we did the Mickey Mouse marching sequence. Is that why that sticks out in your memory, or was there another reason? 
Uh, was it sticker? No, just one of many that were, uh, you know, things you had to do. Um, mm. I think I had a, we had, they're, they're very proud of themselves. They'd laid a thousand foot of track and they had four dollies tra- traveling on the, on the track. One just had the sound department on it with a metronome for playback and a beat. And then there were cameras. And then I had a pickup truck with a five kilowatt generator on it and some space heaters so that I could blow hot air into the actors' faces mm-hmm. because it was December and January in England where it was uh, rather cold. Mm, right, and of course. You really see, apparently you can't see your breath in Vietnam at night. So. But that was one of the many things that can go do that. Being in a tropical zone. Oh, that's yes. just, yeah, brilliant continuity on all right. of your parts. Um, so... Speaking of the scenes you shot in uh, Vietnam, the many of them, uh, among them, there is a scene uh, in which you appeared as a performer, as as yep. a cla- the clapperboard soldier, um, and you appear briefly, but I imagine it must have been uh, an interesting little segue oh. for you, and if you have any memories of that, yeah, please oh, share them with us. It was like, it was, uh, I think we were only two weeks into the production, it's like my second week there and uh we were with stanley had rehearsed a scene with the actor sitting on the corner telling him what to do i think he said they're inside or something and um he, i'm standing next to terry and stanley goes terry we need somebody to say a line and he said stanley we got the guy sitting on the corner with the actor that you cast he said <laughs> yeah but i need somebody earlier he <laughs> said well we've got 40 fucking extras that you've been <laughs> they've been trained specifically to do anything you want they're all soldiers yeah, Terry, we don't, I don't trust any of them. I just don't trust any of them. Interesting. Terry, who do, who do we trust? And uh, Stanley, as usual, playing his wry games, and Terry goes, Ken, go get a costume on. And that was it. Wow. So when I got a costume <laughs> on, wardrobe got stuff on. They put a mic in the helmet, and Stanley started winding me up, saying, Ken, you've got to do an American accent. I said, Stanley, I can't do an American accent. I'm a <laughs> Well, you've got to try it. You've got to try your best. And I said, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And they didn't dub me. Hey, bro. Looking for First Platoon, Hotel 25. Around the back. Uno, dos. One, two, tres, cuatro. You certainly pulled it off. Yeah. I, I watched it again a few nights ago. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's no telling that you're a Londoner at all. No. Why, why do you think? Why do you think he did that? Is it, a bit, of fun, is it a bit of fun for him? Getting it was, to- it was totally fun. Stanley was playing the hugest game you could imagine on the whole of the. It was just a, a big kid with a big box of toys. <laughs> right. It's like you know that uh, you must have heard stories of the the machine gun bat, uh, the storming of the uh, building when the guy's running forward and you see the bullet hits going off. Mm-hmm. I think we did that five times. Wow. Why would you need to do it five times? I don't know. Because it took. <laughs> It took about four or five days to reset it. Yeah, yeah of course, of so course. We did, that, we did that battle. We did that sequence for weeks. So it sounds like you had fun doing that scene, at least. And is, I'm just wondering, off the top of my head, is that was that your only cameo you uh, appeared in any of the other projects you worked on? Oh no, I've been in. Uh, it was quite common. It's to be in certain shows. You just stand there in a bar and just you could do a shot. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was on a low-budget movie in the, on the Isle of Man doing a film. I think it was called uh, Busted. And 
I think we have one camera crew and we had three cameras. And so I called action. I walked past one camera with a pint of beer and put it down <laughs> on the table in front of another camera and then ended up at a third camera when I pulled focus to David Bowie as he pulled through, walked through the door with a machine gun. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, it's, it was, you know, for some of the lower budget stuff, yeah. Ingenuity. Yeah, just trying to make it all work. Um, well, I'm going to ask, what would you say was different with the shooting of Full Metal Jacket compared to some of the other films you worked on in the 80s? Um, it was pretty grueling. Um, the location was pretty gnarly for a start. Hmm. Uh, Beckton Gasworks is not the not, or wasn't the nicest of places. It was just a derelict, huge gasworks. Hmm. Um, not we never really knew what we were doing any day because Stanley would change it dependent on the weather and the lighting. So it was really you just used to turn up. Everything used to turn up. All the actors, all the extras, everyone would get ready, and then all of a sudden we'd head over to a certain part of the uh, area and start the sequence, and then maybe we'd change and go somewhere else. There were many times that we didn't shoot very much in a day because, firstly, Stanley really didn't know what he was wanting, what he wanted, and so he'd just use it as a delay tactic, or um, he just didn't like the light for whatever we were doing because uh, all of the exterior stuff was natural light. Right. I remember seeing it in the theater uh, opening weekend and uh, a friend pointing out to me the uh, the lens flares that occur during some of those scenes and he said oh but you know why would he leave that in and i being 16 <laughs> 17 at the time just didn't think anything of it i was just into the story yeah. um and the visuals of course but uh it's funny how in all those years hence you know you have directors like jj abrams actually inserting you know an abundance of, of yeah. yeah yeah it's really really strange to see how <laughs> The thinking has changed with approaching those. It doesn't take away yeah. any sense of naturalism, uh, to my mind. But um, I wonder um, which of the actors you might have gotten along with, if any, in particular, uh, during your time there. Uh, I've gotten very well with Matthew um, and uh, Arliss. Mm. All the guys, the, the, most of, they lived in a big house in the King's, or just off the King's Road. Uh, uh, Adam was a bit, uh, kept himself to himself. He was a bit of a, uh, there was not much acting required, really. He was, he really was an animal <laughs> in that way. Uh, Ed O'Ross was, he was a cool guy. I liked Ed. Dorian, I felt sorry for Dorian. He was, did, I don't think he really wanted to be there. Um, but why? yeah, they, sorry. Any, any reason why that? Uh... I don't know. I don't know. I just know he wasn't that happy with it, and he the first opportunity he got, he wanted to go. So that's why he got killed first. Mm. <laughs> he spent two days or two or three days putting squibs on him and uh, him lying on the floor. Yeah, well, um, meant saying that, uh, that he got killed first, that, that kind of plays into the fact that Kubrick was constantly developing the script. How, how usual is that? With the, you know, you'd imagine that the, the budgets are tight and everything's got to be unchangeable, really, to a, you know, to a large degree. Was that well, quite different? 
it's very, it's very mostly nowadays uh, scripts are like the bible once it's done it's done mm. uh, the writers are much stronger than they used to be and they they don't want people changing their words mm. um, i do a lot of uh, tv and uh, and tv that's it there is no only the writers make changes but in terms of actually changing plot points and characters dying off in, yep. in yeah all that doesn't happen it's it, you can, and also budget wise and schedule wise you just can't keep doing that no I mean, well, uh, you know, I think I think originally on Full Metal Jacket they were supposed to have a twelve-week schedule, right? You know, I, I mean, That's... I was there for twenty. I was there twenty weeks. <laughs> well, I would like to toggle back for a second since uh, we were just speaking about the the writer having the final say now a day nowadays in everything, um, and without jumping too far ahead, uh, when you were describing how the script was constantly morphing uh, during Full Metal Jacket production. It reminded me of Alien 3, and of course it's well known now the the trials and tribulations of young David Fincher directing his first film, and we have at least two or three different versions of the movie. Um, it seems that he was under enormous pressure to... Uh, both create something that was of his own vision to bring to the Alien franchise, but also really to appease the uh, the studio in 20th Century Fox. And somewhere in between, he got caught. Um, again, without jumping too far afield, I wonder if you had any thoughts about that as it pertains to your experience with the many changes made throughout the production of Full Metal Jacket. Um, I... <sighs> Yeah, I, to be honest, I did from the script that we had on Alien Three. Nothing really changed while we were making it, but what happened was they reshot everything in LA afterwards. Right. So I worked on the the second unit, uh, and we did loads of stuff with animals, um, you know, being terrified and being chased, and um. But it all got cut, and they redid a whole new different sequences that were not in the script that I had. So it was basically done after the fact. And I know I heard stories of we'd finish on a set, it would be junked. And then apparently he'd make sure it was unjunked and shipped to L.A. Wow. Interesting. So that, so that went on for that. So as as far as the script goes, as far when we were working, we had our sequences to shoot, and we just shot them. Pretty... Uh ambitious for lack of a better word for a freshman director to absolutely yeah to have that much uh, power over the producers to insist on that happening so and unjunk sets as you say yeah literally i remember them guys were saying oh we spoke we just start skipping that and uh we were told to pack it up <laughs> wow well we'll come back to that because i would like to know how you found it uh, working with Fincher on his first film, especially since be he's since become uh, a very respected director and very yes. known in, in pop culture. But uh, to go back to Stanley for a moment, just have to ask a general question, you know, how did you find him to work for? How did I find him to work for? He was, uh, you know what, as far, what affected me was very little. It was just tough work. Um, he... he he was very personable. He would always talk to you. He knew everyone's name. Um, he was just very demanding in what he wanted. 
Mm. But uh, as far as working with him, he was ple- he he wasn't. I wouldn't say he was pleasant enough because he wasn't very pleasant to everyone. He used to shout and scream at people a lot, and if he and I got shouted and screamed at by him a lot, which wouldn't be allowed these days. It would be uh, there will be an HR issue. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Some people would have had, but um, that was in the early eighties. But and you know you just you know, take it on the chin and get on with it because that's how it worked. I suppose, was, I suppose times were tougher back then anyway, in general, we hurt there a little bit. Uh, in the well, we were just less understanding of people's uh, feelings and thoughts. So I think it's, you know, I think it's progressed a lot now that we actually do take consideration of what people go through in life. And that it's not all about bullshit and bullets. Yeah, mm. yeah. indeed, indeed. Um, and I wonder, as a sidebar, if there were some aspects if not within yourself maybe you sensed it in others that people were willing to put up with the bullets and the bullshit because here we are working for stanley kubrick etc um i think the <laughs> to be honest i think the only one really who did that was dougie Everyone, <laughs> nobody else nobody else to be honest gave a fuck they'd just leave if it came to it <laughs> Lo- loads of people i'm not putting up with that shit <laughs> But um, obviously, it was a huge credit for Doug Milsom. And so he, and he, in credit to him, he had survived uh, Barry, Lyndon, and The Shining. So, mm-hmm. so he'd survived and he knew Stanley. So he just knew how to take it. But he took a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah. But d- well, for, for no reason, really, because Stanley was photographing the movie anyway. Right. Right. Well, so for him, I guess it was simply the prestige of. Totally. He, yeah, and I totally understand. It's a you know, you come out of that and you've got the DP credit. That's a that's pretty serious. Absolutely. And it's worth it. But for me, it's like um, if it had gone south for me, and I I would have walked if I if I hadn't got fired, I'd have walked. Hmm. Hmm. What well, did you get fired? Yeah, hey, I was going to ask that. Oh yeah, I got fired. Uh, got fired because they found, Stanley found out how much money I was earning. <laughs> wow! Yeah. I suppose was it Warner Brothers that, were, that paid all the bills rather than Kubrick's well, company? Well, it's it's not it doesn't quite work that way. It it was done by a production company on and that show. It was called Harrier Films, which is uh, a bird of prey, right? Um, I think The Shining was done by Hawk Films, mm. right? And I would think you'll find if you go back, all of them were made by Birds of Prey. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so. Warner Brothers fronted the money to Harrier Films. Stanley's company owned all the lights, all the cameras, all the trucks. So there was a reason it was he was invested in it. Yeah, that he just decided that um, I was earning too much money because I'd got the deal I wanted, mm. and we were doing such stupid hours, <laughs> and on a six-day week. So he decided, well, we should get rid of him and save some money. So they got rid of me. They didn't replace me. They just went ahead with with one person less. Right. Was that Terry? Sorry. Was that Terry Needham who was left? Well, Terry and Chris. Yeah. Terry Needham was first. Chris Thompson was the second, and then a guy called Steve Milsom was like the the runner. Right. Mm. You know, it's always interesting to hear the uh, duplicitous nature of Kubrick because. Your honesty is invaluable, and it's fascinating. And yet, 
when we spoke with Kier DeLay and others who would say, you know, he never raised his voice to me. He was always, you know, very kind and very listening. But those of us who've been fascinated with Kubrick for all these many years, we know that there's, you know, one side of the story, the other side of the story, and then there's the truth. And like life itself not being black or white, there is that gray area in which the truth lies. Yeah, I've seen him tear a strip off of a couple of actors mm. uh, that wouldn't be allowed today. Right. So to say he doesn't raise his voice, I think, or didn't raise his voice, I think was a little bit misleading. Um, yeah, that it's, you know, that's how things worked. You take it on the chin. It's like, okay, well, he wants to get rid of you because you're earning too much money. Okay. Yeah. And he was an insomniac. And um, yeah. he had his, he, I mean, a very intelligent guy don't get me wrong he knew exactly everything about everything mm. we thought he did <laughs> but so you couldn't put the wool over his eyes so he knew what was going on all the time and he would i mean he'd be on the phone at five in the morning all the hod's were bought at that time the uh, uh mobile phone which was that awful great big vodafone brick yes yes <laughs> huge thing it was massive but they were all had to have it and they had to have it all on the t- on all the time just so he could get hold of them whenever he wanted hmm. i mean we did, we did i mean stupid things i i used to now and then i'd be ken you've got to meet the extras uh charing cross charing cross is the center of london it's the official center of london so right. charing cross station right. is always known as the center of london so meet the extras at six thirty and call margaret so they'd send a coach 40 extras will all get there i'd tick them all off and if at six thirty, i'd phone margaret from the payphone margaret adams was a coordinator and she'd go um okay so you're going to go to um beckton gasworks okay so tell the driver right let's go to beckton and we drive off to beckton gasworks and then the extras would all get ready in their um fatigue militaries because they're they're in vietnam and then like we'd have breakfast and then to an hour or so just before we were about to head out to the set and find out what we're doing um actually the, the weather's going to change head up to basingbourne uh, head up to um what was it enfield which is where the studio uh the studio not want of a better word an old warehouse which the interior of uh, the marine barracks was mm. so we'd have to in uh, the guys would all have to change out of their one new costume get on a bus and they'd all be we'd all drive up everyone would move the vehicles all the trucks move so by the time you got there, it was late. It was a late lunch. Hmm. And he hadn't done any work by that. Done anything. And Stanley hadn't even left his house. He was still <laughs> in. Uh, so, and that would happen more than once. Did, did that frustrate people? Did everyone kind of just think, well, we're getting paid? It's... Nobody give a shit. It's no. like, yeah, well, we're not, we're not going to get shouted at and we're not going to get dirty. Right. Yeah. Stands to reason. We're getting paid, so. Yeah. yeah, that so logic. You, if, if that's what you want us to do, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, the, so, so at, at Enfield, uh, the interiors of the barracks. Uh, so, yes. uh, so, so you worked with uh, Lee Erme, did you there? Yeah, well, Lee, I knew very well because obviously he was drilling all the other guys, as you know. He was the mm. drill instructor for for the show because he wasn't picked until I don't know. I think it was about November. I think it was decided he was going to do it because there were yeah. still auditioning people. Mm. 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 And then it was. I suddenly said, "Oh, Lee's going to be doing it." Oh, great! Okay, Lee's doing it. And hmm. could you could you see that Lee was the best man for the job? That's well, I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen anybody else. I hadn't seen any of the tests. So he was obviously. I think he was the best man for the job. 
Mm. Yeah, well, it'd take some beating, wouldn't it? Uh, well, the only problem was he wasn't a real actor. Mm. So he didn't know his lines. He worked very closely with Leon Vitale, I believe. Leon, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Leon um, had to try and help him to learn his lines because he couldn't... Uh, even though all the dialogue was written because of what he had done in the videos with the training, yeah, all that abuse that he'd torrented out, he couldn't remember it. Mm. He could only add, you know, he ad-libbed it when he was working, but then to read to do it on a set, we had to have idiot boards made. Mm. Well, it certainly came across as totally effective. Did, yeah, yeah. Totally I mean, did. as we understand it, uh, Tim Colsiri, who went, ended up playing the door gunner, was originally supposed to get the job, and he may or may not have held some resentment over the years for being bypassed for R. Lee. No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know that guy. I never. I, I didn't do that bit, and I right, don't right. Surprise, because that was done much later mm-hmm. in the helicopter. Right. Yeah, the helicopter was done in the new year. That was done sort of March, April, March. You can tell by the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that view out of the helicopter is pretty convincing, isn't it? Uh, of the uh, yeah, supposedly the addressing. Yeah, just Norfolk, somewhere in Norfolk. Well, would they have, would they put in the uh, the kind of little rivers and streams? Would that have been no, no, that would have been because it, yeah, well, the Fenlands exist, don't they? They're all low low drainage areas. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, going back to the uh, burial scene, which you were involved with. Oh yeah, yeah. What 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 do you recall about uh, that scene? Because it is a standout moment within a film of standout moments. Yeah, and it's. It, yeah, please it, tell us. When did we do it? It was it was quite early on that we did it. And it wasn't on our site. We were we had to go somewhere else. So it was like a one off. Hmm. So I don't and I don't know the reason behind it because all it was was a hole in the ground in the middle of nowhere. Um but we went there and I just remember we had to get all the extra the uh extras ready. And Liam was great with them all. He really was. He was very helpful. Because he knew what Stanley wanted more than any than we did, mm. and uh, I remember us getting them in and cut, dusted them over. And all I really remember was that we finished it in a day, which was unheard of. Wow! Uh, that yes. whole sequence was in one day. It was quite a lot of dialogue in that, wasn't it? Well, it was big. Yeah, it was a big sequence. It was one, we did it in one day. And set dressing and all the makeup that had to be applied to the deceased-looking actors in the yeah. pit. And yeah. for continuity, that didn't take long. That didn't take long. They were they were pretty good. And, and one of Stanley's daughters is in that scene, uh, Vivian. Viv, yeah. Well, Vivian was um, the runner that I mentioned, Steve. That was her her boyfriend at the time. All right. Oh, okay. Was that, was that some relation to Doug Milson then? No, no, no. 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 Different spelling. Um, he went on to carry on as a third AD for a couple of years, but then he moved off teaching wind sailing or something. But, yeah. <laughs> but he, was an, he was a good kid, but he was, um, yeah, he was Vivian's uh, boyfriend. But yeah, she was there. She was there most days filming stuff. Mm. And she again ended up working on uh, uh, much of the score under the pseudonym Abigail Mead. Did you Abigail have any? Mead, yeah. yeah, did you? And it's it's fantastic, really. Um, avant-garde or experimental would would be a better word than avant-garde for it but it is signature to the film did you have any idea at the time that she was going to be working on that as well no not at all no i mean she was just a nice kid on the set who took took a load of stills and ended up filming things Mm. yeah there's a much 
you know, wanted documentary coming from that footage, the likes of which <laughs> we don't know if Kubrickdom will ever see, but there's a lot of clamoring for it to this day. She it shot must... a lot of stuff. I yeah. I remember her doing it. I think we've heard something like 50 hours. I think that's no, the I official. It's a no lot. Idea. I just know yeah. she was yeah. there most days doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, she, did for, a great, she did a great one with The Shining, didn't she? The making of Shining. That was a yeah. fantastic. I think it was about 30 minutes long, but you know, yeah, you could tell she had an eye for getting into the getting into the thick of it. Mm. Mm. Um Well, I want to get to uh, you know, some other questions about, you know, your great career, of course, beyond Full Metal Jacket. Um it's not and over yet, you know. I know that. I <laughs> I, I did say beyond. Yes, yes, before we, we move on to uh, any other films, can I just ask uh, Ken about uh, this, the scene? I'll show you the picture first, then say as we describe it. The long oh. kind of sad tracking shot where the, yeah. there's two or three tanks in the foreground blasting. The, that was a very technical shot. Can you show me that again? Because I think I was in that one. It's got a fake camera crew in shot. Oh, I was that side of the camera this time, yeah. That's John Ward. He was the steady cam operator operating the camera. Right. And then Eddie Ties, who was the sound mixer, is actually holding the boom. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, crew members again. Yeah. So uh, what kind of – how long did it take to shoot something like that? It does look very technical. It didn't take – you know what? I don't think it took very long. I can't really remember. I remember doing the sequence. But certain stuff we got through quite quickly. We'd just do a piece. There were lots of stuff moving tanks around because we had we had four tanks. I think, yeah, we had four tanks, definitely, because mm -hmm. we only had three tank drivers. <laughs> and then did I had to learn how to drive a tank. Well, did you have a go at it, yeah? Well, Terry, I need all four <laughs> tanks in this shot. Well, we've only got three tank drivers. Yeah, well, I need all four tanks. Ken, go and learn how to drive a tank. <laughs> That's literally it. I did a, two days of driving a tank. Wow, that's actually really cool. That's it one was, of those they can't take that away from you kind of stories. <laughs> it was a bit weird, but yeah. But that's a, a bit. But that's a bit scary. Being in control of such a heavy weight with people around, <laughs> worrying yeah. about driving over. Well, I was just. I was told uh, they the tank drivers are pretty good. They said you you keep in this line, and then you're on the edge of everything. You'll be fine. Hmm. Right. Well, Stephen, if there's a zombie apocalypse, we know who to call. You just, just bring get Ken. Get yep. We'll bring this. We'll get. We'll get the tank to to Ken, and uh, yeah, we'll survive the zombie apocalypse. Plow them down. Plow them over. Exactly. Um, well, yeah. I mean, without getting away from Full Metal Jacket just yet, the, the stuff you shared with us about leaving the job, being fired, as you oh. you know, as you very honestly put it. Um, just going to ask what, you know, were your, were your recollections upon uh, the final days or hours and how you felt leaving the production? Oh, uh, what, uh, Terry had a word with me about it. He said, you know what? The best thing to do is to just go quietly and don't make a big deal out of it. Mm. So that's what I did. I just kept quiet and just got on with it. And it's, uh, I said, see you to a few of the guys and then just left. That was mm. it. Mm. Mm. Terry, I didn't. I, when did I see Terry again? I worked with Terry Needham again on Empire of the Sun. He was the unit manager in Spain. He seems oh, like okay. a He seems like a character. We've already witnessed Terry. him in the full metal, a few full metal jackets behind the scenes shots. I've been talking about tea breaks and <laughs> about things. the tea break. Yeah, well, that was yeah. that, that was Terry. <laughs> 
We fucked around for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, they no, were we had we yeah. Then we had, I mean, I know it seems like a lot of tea breaks, but we had the tea break that was up at, over there. We had that when he Sorry. broke his knee. You mean you had a tea break at four o'clock? And no. you have a tea break yeah. at no, six this o'clock? Is a, no, this is a fresh tea break. He came up to no, me no. for the tea here. No, no, but if you had a tea break at four, you don't have to break for this tea break. This must just be a, you know, a complimentary tea break. If you broke for tea at four, you don't have to break for tea at six. That's at quarter to seven, then break it for a meal at 7.30. So figure it out. I prefer to do it more, because it gives me more fucking headaches, poxy tea yeah, breaks, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, get them back I fucking the sling them right down that fucking piss hole. Right, Terry. Right. <laughs> sort of man we need, though, Sandy. That's right. Yeah, he was a, he's a character. Well, you did a lot of became Ridley Scott's guy for a long time. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. But I did. Uh, yeah, he he was on um, Empire Strikes, uh, Empire of the Sun, back mm. in uh, in Spain. He did that, and then I think we were going to do a film, which I think I got paid for, but we never shot. <laughs> it was a Brian Chamino film. It was going to be the um, the one that Liam Neeson ended up doing the, about the Irish guy. Who was the director? Oh, uh, um, Collins. Yeah, Michael, Michael Collins. Collins. Oh, yeah. Was that Nick, was that Neil Jordan? Was it? No, not Neil Jordan. No. I, I, th- I don't know who did it in the end. It might have been Neil Jordan, but Michael. Uh, I think Tremino was going to do it, and Terry was going to first it. Stevenson was going to be the second AD, and then he said, "You can, you want to come on board with me?" And I came on, and I did a week, and then the job just folded. Mm. I suppose it, it, there's a lot of that goes on, isn't there? Like uh, films changing the. Uh, heavily changing oh, yeah. the both from a, a new director comes in and everything is up in the air again. Well, things change a lot, you know. Some people, it just for many reasons. I mean, I've been, I was on a movie in Ireland with it was Jennifer Love Hewitt and Kit Pardew, and they'd flown over. They were in Ireland. We were on tech surveys. Uh, we were about to have the production meeting on the Wednesday, and we were going to shoot Monday. And the production manager called us in and said, "Okay, guys, you're all going to go home." Because we had the money didn't come through, the producer had screwed up, and um, the Irish government, the way they get the money from the film financing in Ireland, he'd got it wrong, so we just didn't get the money. So that was it. Wow. wow. Um, wow. On Full Metal Jackie, <clears throat> you mentioned that there was uh, the la- one of the, I mean, the very last scene is the Mickey Mouse thing, which you, you were there at. Uh, the scene that you mentioned that you didn't shoot was that the interior? Oh, the act- was it yeah, the snap? The, the sniper getting killed. The, the young sniper. Girl? It's a girl. It was that's, a girl getting killed. Yeah, is that the one that you didn't witness? No, I didn't see that. I mean, I saw the girls being auditioned for months. They were being auditioned back in September. They were trying to find the girl, and I don't know how many they went through. Um, but I know I know the story kept changing. Uh, that that part of the story I know changed an awful lot. What the end? How they finished the snapper off? The end sequence, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was talk that she got her head removed, which did he actually? We have seen photos of a, a fake head of that actress. Yep. Uh, don't know whether they shot that. That's what we're going to ask if 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 it got shot, but you weren't there for that. No, I don't know. No. And I know they I think they, they shot it in Pinewood eventually. Built mm, the yeah. set. They, they'd run out of time at Beckton, so they built the set at Pinewood. Did you end, ever end up going to uh, like the Stanley's headquarters at, Ch- at Chidig Barret? No. no, never had to go. No. So, yeah. where was his office then? I suppose he was he was in a caravan at, at Beckton. His trailer, yeah, yeah, his yeah. Trailer. right. Yeah. Motor driving around. Mm. What's your overall takeaway about Stanley? Obviously, this is Kubrick's universe, and we love to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. What's <laughs> your uh, 
kind of takeaway <laughs> from Stanley? I used to take away his Marks and Spencer sandwiches. <laughs> he, used have, he used to have them in the fridge in his trailer, and I'd nick one or two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Marks and Spencer sandwiches. Yeah, because it, uh, it, he always, it's like, I remember, you know, you're shooting in December in London. It's like, Terry, why, why do we have to stop for lunch? It gets in the way. We lose daylight. Because we used to stop when it got dark. Mm-hmm. So why can't we just work through? And Terry said, fucking hell, Stanley. It's fine, you walk through. You go to your back to your fucking trailer and eat M&S sandwiches. We're out here in the cold getting on with it. So, yeah. no, we will not work through. Right. We'll have to stop for lunch. And if you got a problem with that, I'm going to eat your sandwich. Yeah. Well, I already did. <laughs> but then you see Stanley would just be smiling at Terry. You know what you saw? You saw that. Yeah, that clip. You know, about yeah. The, the tea. Mm-hmm. Stanley used to love all that when Terry used to rant on. So, so when you say that uh, you stop shooting at night, you know the very end scene where they're the raiding the, the little um, the built-up area where the sniper is. That generally does start dark. It becomes uh, yeah. I mean, the sun goes down at night. We ha- we shot at night if we need for some of the night material. But I'm just saying, generally, when yeah. we were in Vietnam, it was mostly day, and then when we lost the light, we'd go home. Right. So you know that that scene actually a te- very technical question here. So maybe these say these fifty different shots from them from uh, animal mother first running in and blasting it to getting inside the building. Say these fifty shots okay. that put together. The, the gradually each shot is getting a little bit darker. Was that achieved in the in the post production? And were they darken the shots, or did you literally have to be at certain times to keep that momentum of the light changing? Because that sounds like. I don't know how he did it. I mean, I, I would. We, we just shot it, so yeah. it was done during the day at whatever time. But we used to do it, and it was hardly ever in sunlight. We would never shoot a, a sequence like that in daylight, in sunlight. It would always be uh, grey because of the shadows, I guess. Yeah. And then Stanley might change the stop and stop down to make it dark, or up to make it darker. Right. Mm-hmm. Might have done that on that side, but post production, remember, is very limiting in 1980s. Right. Hmm. And I know Stanley was ahead of the game because he was the first one to use a, a version of Avid. It was electronic editing. Right. Non-linear. But, yeah. He was one of the... So that was one of the first big films ever done that way. But um, no, I don't I don't know how they did that. Whether it was him being smart and doing it in camera before we, as we were shooting it or whether it was done afterwards, which would probably be the better way to do it because you can control it more. Mm. You can mm-hmm. make it more even, as opposed to it being a bit patchy. Yeah, right. you know, each lens on a different stop isn't going to match each other. Whereas if, if you do it in post, you can give it an even keel mm. all the way through. So I want to, you know, ask about, if I may, a few other of the films you were involved with, and this is sure. a bit, you know, from a personal angle. But uh, Stephen and I were. 80s teens and uh, home video junkies during the home video revolution and among the films that I've seen an untold number of times uh, going back to Life Force working with Toby Hooper they watched they waited now their time has come out of the depths of space the ultimate terror moving, searching, destroying from body to body from life to life from man to woman, changing, growing, burning for our life force. From the director of Poltergeist, from the special effects creator of Star Trek, the motion picture, 
life force. In the blink of an eye, the terror begins. And uh, I wonder what your own uh, experiences were like on the film and what uh, your impression of the, the film is these years later now that it's long developed a cult following. Well, to me, Life Force, I think I did about a week or two weeks on it. I, was just, I just basically came in to help in with extras. Is, um, Derek Cracknell was the first AD and Melvin was the second, and I'd worked for them a couple of times, and so they just... You know, it was one of those things where you could, we need extra help get, and we get somebody to help. So I'd come in. I think I did all the stuff in the train station. And then I did a bit on the spaceship. Mm. One, of the other, one of the other guys got ill. I just remember Tobe drinking a lot of um, Dr. Dr. Pepper. Pepper. I, Dr. Pepper. I had to keep, <laughs> I had to keep adding him cans, getting him a can. It's smoking, so legendary. Smoking cigar. Someone said that he had a cigar in one hand and a can of Dr. Pepper in the other. Yeah. Every time one of them finished, they were just replaced with a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. Uh, the eccentricity of it all. Have you yeah. seen the film at all in the past, I don't know how I many haven't. years? I've never uh, seen it. I've got a copy of it, but I've never seen it. It's it's crazy in that it it still strikes a chord with me now the way it did then, although... Hope to say I can articulate it better now. It, it just, the movie almost doesn't know what it wants to be. And somehow that's its success. Right. It, it's a, it's, a, it was based on a novella called Space Vampires, which couldn't sound more pulpish. And yet that, you, that was the title that uh, we worked. It was a working title for it. Right. Yeah. So I don't think it did very well at the box office, but somehow, like so many other uh, films from the 80s, it kind of found its audience when it was brought into all of our living room TV screens. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of stuff did that, didn't it? Yeah. Um, a- another one was uh, Legend, although I haven't seen that uh, nearly as many times. I-, I remember watching it because it was Ridley Scott's follow-up to Blade Runner and Blade Runner is personally one of my absolute favorite films of all time. I want to ask yeah. you about something in particular. The, 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 the scene, the shot of the unicorn, which began to appear in Ridley's director's cut from 1990, was not in the original theatrical cut. That was, it's been documented that was shot for legend. Um, we did and shoot it. yeah. Never shoot it. Tell was, us, tell was, us about I was, that. I was only there two weeks. Uh, yet again, I was brought in to help because they were filming on the Bond stage at Pinewood, the original Bond stage. Right. Uh, before they burnt it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another story. Right. You know? <laughs> um, and it was because they had the the forest set, which was so, so huge, they couldn't communicate properly. So they just wanted somebody else with legs to run around and communicate. Mm. So... Um, what did we? F- I filmed stuff with Tom and Mia, and and then obviously the um, the dwarves, and then I didn't film with Tim, but I know we did a we did a shot with a we did shots of a unicorn. I don't know why we did them. I just know we did them because Vic Armstrong. It was Vic Armstrong's horse, I think. He's a stunt coordinator, come director. Who's okay? Okay. Yeah, he's, very, one, of the, he's one of the big names in. He's UK number. Stuff. Yeah, he's, he's been number one for a long time. Anyway, he was, 
was he the guy that doubled Harrison Ford a lot in the he Indiana did. Jones? He did the Indiana Jones films. He's in the film. Oh my gosh, did. that's where I know his name from. Of yeah. course, of course. But he was he's the uh, his family uh, big into he's had a, he's got a ranch in not a ranch a stable I suppose you call it in England and he he I think it was his horse and I think he was around which is why we shot the horse because he could bring it in he wanted it to be around because they had to stick a, an appliance on the horse obviously because guess what there aren't real unicorns right right <laughs> but yeah I don't uh, that was really all I was I was helping on that one um, just sort of helping navigate. Tom and me around the set so they can get lost half the time for the two weeks I was there. And then I carried on working at the studio on another film on another stage called, uh, it was called Dream Lover. Which was yeah. Photo- photographed by Sven Nickvist and directed by Alan J. Pakula. Mm. And I remember one day while we were filming that, that we did our usual. I got David, David Tringham and Michael Stevenson. We got in the cut my car and I'm, I drove him down the pub, down the Black Course, just outside Pinewood, which is where he used to go for lunch, have a couple of pints, talk about the call sheet, and then I drove him back. And as we're driving back, I see this smoke. We'll go, what the fuck's that? And we'll, as we're getting close to Pinewood, we can see the bond stage is on fire. Mm. Um, so as we drove into the studio, the guy said, we're going to get out of the gate and find out what's going on. And then I drove towards the back of the studio, which was at where our stage was. And as I'm coming parallel to uh, the road where the Bond stage was, Tom Tom Cruise was running down, and he stopped at the car and he saw me and said, "Ken, Ken, Ken, what do I do? What do I do?" And I said, um, "Just get in the car with me, Tom, and we'll go over <laughs> to my stage." So he gets in the car and I drive him. He was panicked, and uh, so I drove him over to our production offices where everyone was not there at lunch, but the publicist was, and I took him up to the publicist, and she knew him. And I sat him down and I f- we phoned their office and said, just so you know, Tom's over here if you need him. And he's just having a cup of tea and he's safe. Because obviously it was a huge big to do. And the production shut down, obviously, for a while until they could rework out what they were doing. So that was a very, a very early film for Tom, wasn't it? Uh, it was 85. Of course, he ended up with... 84 when it shot, and he ended up with Kubrick, didn't he, on his final film? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they did indeed. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Do we know what uh, how the fire was? It the fire. It was a gas. Uh, the, apparently, there were gas bottles on the stage, and I don't know how, but they they started the fire. I know the worst thing was that they said, "Oh, first first shot after lunch, guys, will be on the Titan." Now, the Titan crane was a one-off crane built by Chapman from America, which was um, a vehicle with a, an articulated arm that was mm-hmm. controlled by mercury balancing. Oh. So they drove it onto the stage and it melted. Oh, my gosh. Oof. Oof, yeah. Oof is right. And that was the only one in existence, was it, in England? It was the only one in Europe. In Europe, yeah. Wow. I don't know how many were in. So these, these fires, that's the second fire I've heard. Uh, Elstree burned while they were doing The Shining, didn't it? The Shining did, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Not a yeah. grand bit of luck there, running. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think it's so uh, interesting that you were, in fact, involved with the the shooting of the unicorn sequence. Only want to touch back on that because in the Blade Runner sphere, there has been so much conjecture, and you've had people involved with the production of Blade Runner and uh, Legend who've given conflicting accounts as to whether or not 
Ridley had intended to use the unicorn shot all along in a different cut of Blade Runner, which, of course, was first seen in 1990 as the director's cut. I think he's since done it three or four times over. Because we, we were shooting it, as, a, as far as I'm aware, we were shooting a test. Mm. So we were shooting a unicorn. It was somewhere in the in the forest. That's why we had it. Right. And it was being shot as a test. The reason it's uh, relevant to, you know, the abundance of analysis given to Blade Runner is that people who prefer the unicorn version uh insist that that means that harrison ford's character rick deckard is himself a replicant whereas <laughs> y- you know he's he's an artificial person having an artificial dream about an artificial being you know a unicorn and the film existed since 1981 through 1990 without that shot for people like myself who saw it for nine years without, uh, or I'm sorry, it was 82. Was it? It was. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not remembering this. Stephen, cut that out. <laughs> I should know these things. Uh, anyway, it had a uh, very different. The film was like a futuristic detective film noir. Yeah. Uh, and once it achieved its cult status, suddenly it was turned on its ear when we have the introduction of the one solitary unicorn shot. Harrison's kind of drifting in and out of consciousness at his piano in the apartment. And to those Blade Runner fans who prefer the version with the unicorn, right, no, that's it. It has to mean that, you know, Deckard is not a real human. And because I've read about and the and the number of different takes that people who were there have on it. I just, uh, I find it interesting what you're bringing to the mix because it's one of those things that no one will ever have the right answer. Of course, Ridley himself is very insistent that he always intended for Derek's, uh, for uh, Deckard's, uh, you know, reality to be as an artificial person, that he was never a human. And yet it kind of belies the fact that he never really came forward and said that until people in the early 90s started saying, well, what does the unicorn scene mean? What does that mean? It must mean, ooh, I think it means. <laughs> I think people think too deeply about stuff that's just in a piece of entertainment. You're right. You're right. Uh, you know, you should. You don't need to analyze it that much. I agree. And it it's happens. Like enjoy it. Yeah. It's good. If you don't yeah. enjoy it, then yeah. it's no yeah. good. It's not, it's, it... Issue where you agree, Jason. It sounded like you were trying to analyze it then. Well, I I do, but I mean, just for my own, you know, mental perusal, if you will. And at the same time, I'm not trying to get to any hard truth. I just find it interesting. I like looking at things like an onion and trying to peel back layers of causation until you can come to some semblance of, if not truth, but understanding. I don't think I've seen seen, uh, Blade Runner for so long. I don't think it had the unicorn in it. So I don't even know if it was the one that we shot. Mm. Because it was quite a beautiful horse. And it looked very fairy tale-ish yes. in, when we shot it. So I don't yeah. know if that's the one that you used. Well, speaking of uh speaking to your point about, you know, hey, don't read so much into it. Did you enjoy it? It's a movie. That does tend to happen more in Kubrick's films analysis than perhaps any other director from the latter half of the 20th century everybody pours over everything well why is the chair in this shot and then we cut to a different angle and the chair is not there in the shining for example and on and on and on 
Oh, well, the thing is with Kubrick, though, is that a lot of it he doesn't give a shit anyway. Right. <laughs> I mean, there was there were stories of when they were doing um, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and I, I'm not sure there was a big-named a big named actor that had been in the show, and um, he, uh, Stanley wanted to do a reshoot. Mm. And... Um, he said, well, what does he want to reshoot it for? We all, we're all happy with it. And he, apparently, well, Stanley wants to change the curtains in the background. So this actor said, well, I'm, I'm not going back for that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so Stanley shot, reshot everything without him. We've got a different actor. Wow. Because he wanted different curtains. Right. Do you think he really did want different curtains? Or do you think he wanted a different actor? <laughs> and, he, and he used that as a reason. Could be both. Yeah, could be. Mm-hmm. That was more well, feasible. If it, if it, well, no, not really. He wouldn't bother asking him to come back. They'd have just got rid of him and redone it. Mm. Yeah, but contractually, he might have had no. to. No, no. 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 Mm. I wonder if that were Harvey Cartel. Harvey Cartel was it, was. It, was it, right? Yeah. It was mm. Harvey Cartel. Mm. And they later well, shot it with Sidney, Sidney Pollock, yeah. uh, ended up playing that, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to mention, you worked with Meryl Streep on Plenty. <laughs> yeah. What was she like? I've always been fascinated by her. Um, she kept herself to herself. She was a very pleasant lady, very professional. And she was lovely. She was good to work with. It was a, it was a tough show because it was filming in houses in London, which is not easy with a whole film crew. And then we went to Belgium and France and Tunisia, and it was that was quite hard going. Mm. But yeah, mm. and we had a lot of guest stars in it. But it was all period, so that you know it slows it down. But yeah, it was she was she was very nice, very professional lady. What about Pacino on Revolution? He was very method. So it would be a problem. You'd go you'd go in in the morning and say, "Hi Al, how you doing? Yeah, I'm great, great." And you'd have a coffee with him, and then you'd step out of his trailer and you'd get him ready, and then you'd say, "Right, we're ready for Al," and you'd bang on his trailer and say, "Al, we're ready for you," and then that would be it. And then he might not come out for an hour. Mm. Right. Because he was working himself up to it. And then he'd come out, he just couldn't talk to him. Mm-hmm. And then, it's very strange. And then we got him to Norway. We were out in the middle of nowhere in Norway. And, and I said to him, do you want to come? We're going down the bar to the club. And I know he didn't drink. But I said, do you want to come with us just to hang out? No, 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 I'll get hassled. I said, no, you won't. You won't get hassled here. Nobody knows you. What do you mean they don't know me? I said, I promise you, they don't really know <laughs> We're in the we're in the middle of bloody troll land. We're nowhere. <laughs> right. So we we went down to this hotel bar and uh, into the nightclub and we all sat around chatting and talking and some uh, people come around and were sitting and talking to us and they didn't know who he was and he was so relaxed it was amazing but he I think he's just got a fear of he's paranoid about people recognizing him and pressuring him. Um, but then you know. To fast forward a bit, you did work with uh, Tim Burton more than once. And yeah, the first time, of course, I want to ask you about him because, you know, when you worked with him on Batman in 1989, he was effectively coming out of the gate with a triumvirate. I mean, in this country, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure was a box office hit, and then it was followed by Beetlejuice, another one. Big box office hit, and then he comes out with Batman, and you and we all remember those of us who were there. The merchandising alone, and the the, the <laughs> ubiquitousness of the Batman logo in pop culture, 
Um, So tell us about your experience working with the then young uh, Tim Burton. So I was brought, yet again, brought in to do the extras um, for the the street sequence, for the night work, all Mm. the night work in Gotham. That's the bit I was there for. Um, And uh, Derek brought me over to Tim and said, look, Tim, this is Ken. He's our first AD. We're uh, our second AD. He's going to help coordinate all the background for us and just go through anything you want with him. Which and he was very, very easy to talk to, and he knew what he wanted, so it was fine. The, the biggest problem on that film was the stars because uh, Michael Keaton thought he was a star, and he didn't realise that Jack Nicholson was. So Jack Nicholson <laughs> used to let him know that he was, and so there was a lot of dicking around <laughs> on the set because of that. Sure. And then this. Miss Bassinger was having an, I think, uh, an affair with one of the producers. So it was all—it was more about stars than filmmaking. Mm. Uh, Tim was just in the middle of it, but managed to get a decent movie out of it. Then you worked—you worked with Tim again a decade later on Sleepy Hollow. I did two days. Okay. I got called, uh, they phoned me up, a uh, producer, uh, production manager phoned me up, Dusty, and said that Chris said you could come in and help. Chris Newman was the first AD. We've got a visual effects shot that we want. But he said mm. we can, uh, we've got two days to get it, and it's going to be really tough because it involves using Johnny. So um, can you come in and do it? And I, it was like a wet, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but anyway, it was two days in a row. I said, yeah, of course I can. So I go in and uh, say I to the production office, and it was down in southwest southwest of london they'd actually built sleepy hollow in the woods and just around the corner like five minute five minute drive there's there was a field and they basically laid out a roadway up the field with tons of um loads of haystacks and pumpkins all over the place and the idea was that they were going to build the visual effects were going to put a mansion on top of the hill and the idea was to have a shot of johnny walking up the hill with the mansion in the background mm-hmm. so okay great so we stood around uh, i had a like a visual ilm unit there and me and a couple of the ca- and the camera guys there was only about 15 of us and i went over to the set and chris said oh can you hear he said it's going to be tricky um and he introduced me to tim and tim said oh i think I, yeah i remember you and he remembered me very polite he said i really want this shot and it's really important to me can you make sure i get it and i said i'll do my best <laughs> and like it's mine so uh chris uh, got me to go and meet johnny and um johnny was sitting in a group with all, he was a very very nice guy so he was sitting with the makeup and hair people who i knew all of them and then i said apparently this shop is going to be hard to get and then johnny said yeah they'll never get me over there i'll be too busy and i said well if we do get you over there we're just gonna have to do it really quick aren't we and they went yes Said, so we should all be ready when we get there. You're all good with that? And they all nodded, and it was like, okay, we'll do it. So the first day we sat around, and then nothing. We, they just didn't release him. And it, this was, I think it was January. We had some good weather, and so, of course, it's dark at 4, four o'clock. We're wrapped. The next day we come back, and in the morning they decided we should do a shot of a carriage going up the hill, coming down the hill. We did both, I think, just because we did it. So we did a shot of a carriage going up and down the hill. And then it's like 3.30, and then we're waiting, and we're waiting, and then it's like 3, 3.40, and then it, I get I hear over the radio, okay, uh, Johnny's going to go over to the other unit and get that shot. So we got like, oh, great, this is great. 
And as I'm saying that, I see this Land Rover drive in and Tim and um, Chivo get out of the vehicle. And uh, Tim says, you're ready. I said, Tim, we're 100% ready. As soon as he turns up, we're rolling. <laughs> and uh, Chivo goes, yeah, we, we don't have much time. He said, we, I can't shoot unless the light is right. And it's going, go, it's going really quick. So Tim starts panicking, and then then we see the next Land Rover coming up. It's a big Land Rover, and out gets Johnny and the makeup and the hair and a costume and a prop man at the back. I said, Johnny, you're 100%. And they all looked at me, and I, I said, yeah. And they went, yes. So give Johnny the bag, roll the camera. And Johnny walked up the hill, and we cut. And Chivo said, that's it. We can't do that again. It's too dark. So we did wow. it one take, and uh, that was it. We wrapped. Now, when you watch the film... You look at the shot of Johnny Depp walking up the hill towards the mansion, which could have been anybody. Um, it says directed by Tim Burton. That's where his credit goes, right on that shot. Oh, mm. right. Interesting. Which he had which planned from the beginning. Uh, wow. Hence but, why he told you it was so important to him. Yep. But he's, he's a really, really nice guy. Everyone likes him. Very yeah. talented. Really talented. Let me ask you like one or two final questions going back to Stanley. Do you recall any time in conversation where Stanley might have given you a bit of advice or Never. is it just some, something that he said to you on the side that stuck in your memory? No. No, okay. I don't think he, he didn't really have a conversation with Stanley about anything. I was just either told to go and do something. Mm-hmm. or told I'd done something wrong. Hmm. It was never really, you know, it's never, Ken, what do you think about? No, it's never a mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. I guess our final one would be something we like to ask everyone, and it is a very open-ended question. There's no right answer. But simply put, who is Stanley Kubrick? Who was Stanley Kubrick? Uh, a megalomaniac film director who did some pretty good movies. <laughs> good answer. We've had, we've had someone else say that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, well, but that's... You know, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of all his films, but, you know, some of them are really good. No, <laughs> you know, I didn't like Eyes Wide Shut at all. Full Metal Jacket, I wasn't that mad with. I love The Shining, and I love mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon. And as I said... Uh, Paths of Glory. glory. Mm. Do you recall seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey in the theater? Yeah, I never really got to grips with that one. Interesting. I think I, you know what, I haven't seen it in so long. I think I was pretty young when I saw it, and I don't Mm. think I really got it. I I was the same. I was the same with that one. I was far too young. Me as well. And I've had to watch it 10 times for it to become one of my favorites. Yeah. It is. A lot of his films are growers. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, at the risk of uh, asking you to tell us something you may not be able to, are you able to share any of the projects you've got forthcoming? Anything that uh, excites you right now? Oh, nothing excites me that I'm doing now. <laughs> this, is <just laughs> normal, this is just normal TV stuff. I mean, I'm doing a Christmas movie for Hallmark, of which there are 15 being made right now in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So I'm just one of, you know, they're not exciting. Um, they each have their challenges, but you know, it's that's what I do for a living is a job, right? Do they, do they play outside Canada? These all these Christmas movies, all of them do, yeah. They're on the Hallmark yeah. channel, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've never, I've never tuned into Hallmark. Yeah, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> are, they, are they like TV movies, would you say? Yes. Can't, yeah, that's a way They're made for Hallmark Channel. They're, yeah, they're, nah, yeah. And everything ends happily ever after. And it's Aww. really lovely and sweet. Nobody gets hurt. There's no fighting because they can't afford it. No fun. There's no fun yeah. there, is there? It's fun. It's and you know, it's a nice script. It's nice to do something that's clean. Yeah, yeah. And you can and, and you can get home at the end of the day and you, you know so where you job. are. Yeah, great. It's a job. Well, I, 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 I can tell that with some of the early films you worked on, you've been in the trenches. So I think it's time you yeah. you got a bit of a, a bit of peace <laughs> in your job. <laughs> no, no, trenches still turn up now and then. Right. Yeah. Great interview. We did good, wouldn't you say? Jason imitating Stephen Poorly? Yeah, that was sad. We did well good. Live to serve, my liege. Our great big thanks to Ken Shane for sharing these wonderful insights. We hope you enjoyed hearing from him. Now, on the topic of Full Metal Jacket, we are very proud to announce details of a new documentary about the making of Kubrick's anti-war epic Full Metal Jacket and how you can get involved. The team behind it has recently launched a crowdfunding campaign. The doc is currently in pre-production and seeks Kubrick fans to assist funding in order to facilitate the shooting of interviews in the U.S. and the U.K., licensing clips and music, and other associated production costs. You will now hear the audio from the new Indiegogo trailer. This is my bro Joker from the island, and this is Rafterman. Rafterman. Hi, I'm Kevin Major Howard. I played Rafterman in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, and I'd like to introduce you to an exciting new documentary about the making of the film. I think the bizarre stories about Stanley Kubrick have been created because, you know, he chooses not to do interviews, and so people have to make up stories about him. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. You will not like me. And I believe there's a tremendous amount of violence in there, and and I know for a fact that Stanley Kubrick is an anti-violent type individual. A groundbreaking new documentary exploring Kubrick's legendary war epic. Actors are sometimes undisciplined enough not to go home and go to sleep at night and they go out and they come the next day and they haven't learned the lines. Prepare yourself for the ultimate examination of this cinematic masterpiece. From its very inception, adapting the original novels. How can you shoot women, children? Easy! You just don't lead them so much! <laughs> the script writing process, through the stunning art design, the unusual casting process, the challenging UK shoot through post-production, and its eventual release in 1987. Turn over. the interviews, roll 34. Exclusive, never-before-heard interviews with the key players. Private Joker has uh, born to kill in his brain, and he has a peace sign on his heart. Peace symbol, sir. Here are the perspectives of lesser-known contributors, such as supporting actors, I'll fix it up, sir. crew members, and other behind-the-scenes personnel. Animal Mother cuts the head off the sniper. Rare photographs, footage, production materials, and archival interviews. 
It also suggests a sort of post-combat euphoria, which you see in uh, Crazy Earl's face, you know, after he shoots the guys that are running out of the building. That great look on his face of euphoric pleasure. Suddenly the music starts. I went, everybody's heard about the bird. An in-depth and intimate journey into the making of one of Stanley Kubrick's most revered films, told by those who were there. You're so ugly you could be a modern art masterpiece. Modern art masterpiece. The making of Full Metal Jackets. Hey, start the cameras. This is Vietnam, the movie. Yeah. Today, you people are no longer maggots. You're part of a brotherhood. From now on, until the day you die, wherever you are, every Marine is your brother. But always remember this. Marines die. That's what we're here for. But the Marine Corps lives forever. And that means you live forever. If you want to see this film get made and officially be part of Kubrick's legacy, then check out the different levels of support and the great perks. Please, share this campaign with anyone you think may want to get involved. Talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? It looked like something, didn't it? Thanks for watching. Roger out. If you want to get involved, head over to Indiegogo.com and search A Modern Art Masterpiece. This looks like it could be great. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Kubrick's Universe podcast on all your socials and wherever your pods are cast. Check in with our YouTube channel and come visit the largest group in the known universe for all things Kubrick, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook. Sorry, Zook, still no one's calling it meta. On behalf of our producer, Stephen Rigg, I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, thanking you for tuning in. And in the immortal words of Joliet Jake Blues, may I remind you to always do what you feel, but keep both feet on the wheel. See you soon. Over and out. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.